For just a few hours a day, low tide can uncover surprising reminders of everyday life in London, including relics that centuries ago became buried along its muddy banks. Lara Maklem's a licensed mudlarker who writes and posts about the fun she's had getting dirty while searching for London's past. Lara joins us now from her home base just downstream from the city in Kent. Hey, Lara. Hi, Rick. Nice to, nice to be here. Yeah, you know, I love this whole dimension of kind of traveling through England by realizing there's a lot of history buried in the mud on the Thames River. And uh, I just want to read a passage from your book, just a sentence that I found so evocative. There, lying next to the eroding barge bed, as if it had just been dropped by a passerby, was a chunky copper coin dated 1797 with the arrogant head of George III looking remarkably composed in the mud. There's a lot of history in England, and you can find it in the river. You certainly can. The River Thames has been a rubbish dump, quite simply put, uh, for 2,000 years or more. People have been throwing things into the river, either dropping them by accident or throwing them in on purpose. Now, it's such a productive place to do a little beachcombing because there's so much history and so much of the story of England and Britain happens right along the Thames. Talk about the importance of the Thames, the River Thames, for for ancient uh, Britannia during ancient Roman times all the way up to uh, 20th century. London's only there because of, of the Thames. It was deep enough for them, the Romans to sail their, their boats up and uh, to settle and to create Londinium. It was a, a centre where they could import goods and export goods as well, and it grew as a, as a trading centre. Obviously, over the years, it's been invaded by the Vikings, by the Saxons, and by the Normans, and it's grown and it's become what it is today through trade and through its connection to the world. The Thames connects London out through to an empire at one point. And uh, it, it's brought the world in. It's made London a very cosmopolitan place. And it's taken London out and exported London to the world. So it, it is so, it has been so vital to the city. And of course, London was the, the capital of the ultimate empire for centuries, I think you could say. There's just a physical thing. The port started right in downtown London, but over time, it retreated or it had to go farther and farther away for just physical reasons. I love those old etchings and paintings of London where you've got all the shipping right there in downtown London, but then bridges were built that ships couldn't get under. Uh, then uh, the Thames barrier was built that controlled the flooding. Then ships were too big to get close. So eventually the port goes farther and farther and farther away. And what today the port of London is like, what, 25 miles downstream. Uh, talk about how as sightseers we can trace the the evolution of the port over time as it eventually goes farther and farther away from downtown London. Yes, uh, I mean, during Elizabethan times, obviously, everything was taking place around a place called a Custom House, which is between London Bridge and the Tower of London. And you'll see Custom House at the riverside um, on the North Shore. And that's where objects were offloaded and the taxes were paid. And then gradually they're spread out through Wapping and Rotherhithe. And you can still see a lot of the old warehouses along there and the wharfs. They've been converted now into flats. And then it moved out towards the Isle of Dogs and we've got the uh, Canary Wharf and uh, West India Keys. And that's where all the West India ships were bringing all the sugar and all the really exotic objects like you know, ostrich feathers and, and incredible things like that, shells and rum, and wine, and all these huge warehouses filled with these, these wonderful spices and things like that. 
And it gradually moved further and further away. And London as a port was abandoned in the 1960s, 70s, when the ships became container ships. They became too big mm. to come that far up the Thames. And the port now is located out towards the estuary. And it's still a huge working port. Laura, something kind of fundamental to beachcombing on the Thames is the fact that the Thames is tidal. I remember when I was uh, in Westminster, looking out from Westminster Bridge, and there's lion's heads on the embankment. And those really were very important back in the, in the 19th century. When you look at those lion's heads, what do you think? It's said that if you see the, if the water level gets up to the lion's head, if you see it drinking, then London is going to flood. Um, now, I have seen them drinking, but I've never seen London flood, so I don't know. Um, but that's what the old waterman used to say. But actually, that's a remnant from before we have the big movable flood barrier, right, uh, that tamed the river from the floods? It is, yes. You can actually go up to the uh, to the barrier, to the Thames barrier. It's quite an interesting trip. Uh, and if you time it right, you'll see them lifting and closing it. They test it a lot. And it's saving London more and more from flooding uh, because obviously water levels are rising. And they're going to apparently have to build a new one further out towards the estuary pretty soon because it's going to get overwhelmed fairly soon. Okay, but that will protect London from the rising sea. Uh, a lot of great cities don't have that built-in protection, but because London has this world's second largest movable flood barrier built in 1982, they can renovate that to accommodate the rising sea and London will be protected from that? Yes, um, uh, water levels have been rising by about a foot every century. If you go to a place called Strand on the Green, you'll see evidence of that. But the old um, houses that are alongside the river, it's, they still flood. But you'll see the steps that have been built higher and higher and the, and the doors have got smaller and smaller until they're, they're like little hobbit doors. <laughs> Laura Maiklem is licensed to mudlark the River Thames for historical surprises. Her book, Mudlark, takes us with her to scan the river's shores at low tide. It's also a bestseller in Britain under the title Mudlarking, Lost and Found on the River Thames. She's also released the illustrated A Field Guide to Larking to extend your treasure searches to beaches, fields, and even your home and garden. Laura shares her finds on Twitter and Facebook at London Mudlark. In your book, you call the River Thames England's longest archaeological landscape, kind of implying that there's a lot to find in the mud of the Thames. As a beachcomber, you've been doing that for 15 years and told the story in your book. What do we need to know about beachcombing, mudlarking on the Thames? I mean, for me, I think uh, beachcombing on the Thames, it's, it's that thrill of not knowing what you're going to find next. Every tide uncovers something completely different and the, the objects that I find are just the they're just the ordinary everyday objects that you don't really see in museums you know a museum wouldn't put a pin on display for example but it's the everyday things that you know that our ancestors were using and it's that knowledge that when you bend down to pick these things up you're the first person sometimes in thousands of years to actually touch them and and that feeling is is magical Oh, that's so beautiful. You know, mudlarking, that was the term for beachcombing back when people would scavenge the riverbanks like poor people scavenge dumps today in big cities. And they would just kind of gather together a, a survival, just enough of other people's junk that they could sell and not starve. Today, of course, people are beachcombing because it's, it's sort of a hobby and they find bits of history. As a beachcomber, I would worry about so many people beachcombing that they pick the mudflats clean. But because of the tide coming and going, uh, in your book, you talk about how the tide replenishes, and every time the tide rises and falls, 
The Beachcomber can find a fresh selection of historical bits and pieces from England's distant past. And some days you find absolutely nothing. Other days you'll find the most incredible amount of things. So, you know, every tide does wash something new in and it's eroding out of the mud. The mud is made of refuse in some places. I think in some places it's spoil that's been dug into the Roman and medieval layers further inland and dumped on the foreshore. And that's why we sometimes find, say, a, a Victorian bottle next to a, a medieval buckle. It's just a mismatched muddle of history oh. down there. And I don't even know what to look for, but I walk along the river banks of the Thames at low tide. I can hardly resist when the tide goes out because I love beachcombing. And I find tiles that date all the way back to the 17th century for the Great Fire of London in 1666. And I find these white chalky tubes, sometimes with a with a pipe bowl on them. And, and I realize those are the pipes that people used in the days of... Uh, King George or Charles Dickens to smoke their tobacco and they'd, they'd break one and throw it into the river and we can find it today in the 21st century. It's amazing, the history, and that's what you talk about in your book. I'd also like to talk just about flat-out sightseeing along the, the River Thames. Of course, when we're in London, we've got the London Eye and we've got Big Ben and Westminster and the Tower of London. One of my favorite things about sightseeing in London is the Jubilee Walkway. It's the, the path on the south bank of the Thames. You know the Thames intimately. What does the South Bank mean to you? And what is the general feeling about the uh, the Jubilee Walk? I love the South Bank. Uh, I mean, I've watched it evolve over the years. When, when I was first started bundlocking, there was no Millennium Bridge. You know, the globe hadn't really been built and the Tate Modern was still a disused power station. So I've watched it evolve and I've watched the tourists come. And it's incredibly busy down there. You know, it never used to be busy by the river. It was almost a place mm. that Londoners didn't bother with and, and tourists never thought about visiting. And now it's become more of a focus, really, for the city. And um, just walking along that walkway, it's, it's lovely. There's so many people there. There's some great bars and restaurants and pubs down there and some, some great museums you can visit as well. Clearly in London, you've got all the decent stuff on the north, and then you've got all the rough-edged stuff on the south. How does that work historically in London? What characterized that wrong side of the tracks, the south side of the Thames River? I suppose the south side of the river was always more marshy. The Romans settled the north side because there were two hills. There was Ludgate Hill and Cornhill, and that's where they settled and, and began their um, Londinium. So it was always higher uh, and easier to live on. And people didn't live on the south side because it was marshy. It was it was inhospitable. From sort of medieval times, it was characterized as the, the place where the prostitutes were and where people went to do the things they couldn't get away with on the north side because it was out of the jurisdiction of the city of London. As soon as you crossed the bridge, the laws that applied in the city of London didn't apply there. So you could go and do all sorts of naughty things like bear baiting and cockfighting and go to the theater and visit a lady of the night and you wouldn't get into trouble for it. So, um, and this was also tax free because you didn't, when you crossed into the safety of the city, I think you'd have to pay taxes, but you could have your market to this day, the borough market on the other side, the south side of the Tower Bridge is such a characteristic place. And we've got to remember it's characteristic because it was sort of tax-free and uh, outside of the rule of law, and that's where that rough-and-tumble commerce was okay. It was, yes. I mean, the bishops really controlled the south side of the river, and uh, you know, a lot of money poured into the church from all of this. But yes, Borough Market is an ancient, ancient market, and today it's a wonderful place to go for a walk around. Oh, I love Borough I, Market. I love it. I love it. 
When we think about London, we think about bridges. I mean, London Bridge, we all grew up singing it. Uh, there's a handful of bridges that really matter to the tourists. I think one thing we have to stress is uh, until 1750, there was only one bridge. The rest of it was little ferries that crossed the river for the great city of London, right? That's right, yes. The wherries and the ferrymen were in charge, really. The river was a great highway because the road, simply because the roads were so terrible in London. You know, they were muddy and, and dreadful, rutted roads. And so it was quicker to get uh, up and down and across uh, by using a wherry and using a ferryman. And it could take, so, sometimes take hours to get across old London Bridge. So it was quicker to go across by a ferry. By a ferry. And London Bridge was lined with uh, little buildings and shops, like our image of the Ponte Vecchio in, uh, in Florence. It was. There was even a palace on there, non such palace. The buildings were built up and up and up, and they went incredibly tall, and they almost reached, they almost touched each other at the top, so it created this tunnel. You can only imagine how busy it was. There was also mm. a prison on there. There was some toilets on there. Um, mm. There was everything on the bridge, and it was a really quite a salubrious place to live. Everybody wanted to live on the bridge. But the funny thing is, a lot of people, when they think London Bridge, it's actually one of the ugliest, most boring bridges in London today, I'd say. And our image of London Bridge is actually Tower Bridge. I mean, on the cover of my London guidebook, routinely we put the Tower Bridge. It's such an iconic view. It's kind of embarrassing for me to think that one of my countrymen actually bought the London Bridge, thinking I think he was buying the Tower Bridge. And uh, he, what he got was uh, a pretty ugly, boring building. Do you know that story? Yes, we, we all have a good laugh about that, I have to admit. <laughs> tell us about it. I, I just can, Tell us your understanding of that story, please. Uh, well, you know, there's been different, uh, the, the London Bridge, there's been different London bridges. There was the old medieval one that eventually got pulled down and replaced by a Victorian one that didn't last actually that long. Uh, the one we have now was built in the 70s and the Victorian mm. one was pulled down and an American came along and thought they were buying Tower Bridge. In fact, they were buying the old Victorian London Bridge, which wasn't that uh, exciting either. And it was all taken away to Arizona, wasn't it? And it's on a, on a lake. And they don't have the beautiful Tower Bridge, which you can no. go up in now. It's actually uh, uh, renovated, all the mechanics of it, how it would raise up for the ships and so on. And that's the bridge right at the Tower of London. And that really is the iconic bridge in London. And then Westminster Bridge is one we all know, and most of us love it, because you walk out on that for a view of Westminster Palace and Big Ben, and, and you go there on your way to get to the, the big Ferris wheel on the Thames, the London Eye. Yes, Westminster Bridge is, is iconic. And of course, Millennium Bridge as well uh, mm. is the newest bridge. That's a wonderful bridge. And that's the um, pedestrian bridge. That's the beautiful pedestrian bridge. And if you want to walk from St. Paul's uh, down to the, the, the Tate Modern Gallery, it's just a beautiful experience. That's right. And fantastic view. You get an amazing mm -hmm. view of um, St. Paul's from the end of there as well. Sadly, the bridges of London have been in the news in the last few years because of terrorist attacks. I believe two bridges have had a car that's driven onto it or a, a, a van and actually killed people in a murderous kind of uh, uh, action. But London, as it does so well, has not overreacted to the terrorism, but just got the bad guys and, and fixed the problem. And today, those bridges have been remodeled for pedestrian safety. You've probably crossed these bridges. What will the tourist or, the, or, or anybody in London find these days to comfort them when they think of walking safely across the bridges? Uh, yes, there are big concrete bollards at both ends, so it really is quite um, quite safe now. The bollards will, will stop anyone from driving up onto the, the pavements there. So, uh, so yeah, terrible, terrible attacks they were, but, um, you know... They, but safe now, and, and as a matter now. of principle, the people of Britain will not be terrorized by the terrorists, and they continue owning their bridges. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Laura Maiklem. Her book is Mudlark, In Search of London's Past Along the River Thames. Laura, I could talk to you all day about the Thames, and we're just about out of time, but 
we've been talking about London and people are kind of fixated on London, but the River Thames is 200 miles long. What outside of London, just in a, a couple of quick words, would be highlights for a traveler visiting England? What would you want to see for sure to get a better appreciation of the sights along the Thames? If you're using the Thames, I should actually say get on a boat on the Thames because mm. you really, there is, um, you get a totally different perspective of the city and go at night as well because you'll see, you go under all the bridges and they're lit up and it's amazing. Get a boat out to Greenwich. That's where I lived when I lived in London. I lived there for years and years and it's my favorite part of London. And mm-hmm. there are, uh, as a beautiful park, it's where time begins. The Zero Meridian. Yeah, we know the That's Zero right. Meridian. That's there. Yeah. And also it's the maritime capital of the empire upon which the sun never set. Absolutely. Yes, there's a great maritime museum. There's the Cutty Sark you can go on. And there's some great places to eat and uh, shopping mm-hmm. and things like that that you can do there. It's fantastic. Um, up the other end, you're going towards Kew Gardens. You can't beat Kew Gardens. It's absolutely beautiful. If you want to go beyond the tidal Thames, Hampton Court is on the Thames. It's incredible, (laughs) Hampton Court. Hampton Court, Um, I love it. And a cool thing about Hampton Court and Kew Gardens is you can reach them by boat. And what a delightful way to approach two of the great sites in England. It does take a little while from from central London, but if you've got the time, yes, go by boat. And if you go to Hampton Court, go to the kitchens. They're the best bit. All right. Laura Maiklem, thanks so much for joining us. And congratulations on your book, Mudlark, In Search of London's Past Along the River Thames. And uh, next time I go to Britain, I'll have a little better appreciation of the historic wonders that line and are buried in the mud of the River Thames. Thanks, Rick. I'm looking forward to seeing you in London. I hope that's sooner rather than later. Take care. Bye. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com.